reading today is from Acts 13, 26 through 43. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, also as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will, not let, you, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God for, in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, though, that through this man forgiveness of, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if, no, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told, told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke to them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of, our, of the Lord. Thank you, Price, for reading that, and Bruce for the announcements. Scotts, thank you so much for your encouragement to the church today. That was really encouraging for us all to hear. All right, so we are in... Our sermon series in the book of Acts, and uh, just to kind of locate what's happening here on the map, um, Paul and, and uh, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They had started in Crete, and they went from one side of the island to the other to Paphos, and then they left there and they went to Perga in Pamphylia, and from there they went to Pisidian Antioch, and that's where they are here. So they've been on the move um, as they're making their way through Asia Minor here, uh, and just kind of dipping their toe in. When you look at the missionary journey maps in your Bible uh, or online, as the case may be, one of the things you see is, is they get a little bit bigger each time. And so this first one is pretty contained in a lot of ways, but, but there's a pattern that's starting to develop. And so um, I'm looking forward to, to getting into this. What we're going to do today is we're actually going to get into the actual sermon itself 
uh, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. There's lots of these in the book of Acts, and most of what we've been talking about through this series has been the context in which these sermons are proclaimed, but today it's a good example of kind of all the sermons in Acts, and so we're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, but uh, this is a, uh, when I was thinking about the, the message that, that I've kind of put together to, to talk through this text, there are kind of two things in play that are very consistent. So if you're consistent with kind of how I think about a passage and how I put together a sermon. Um, so if you're new with us and you're wondering like what makes the preacher tick in the way that he writes sermons, there are two things that are kind of always there. Uh, one is what is the message of the gospel to the person who is exploring what Christianity is. So, so kind of an evangelistic or, or um, um, kind of an uh, understanding for the seeker, how, how do you understand what's being said here? And the other part of it is biblical literacy. I love teaching the Bible and helping uh, kind of give some framework and category for it. So this, there's kind of that happening here today is a lot of biblical literacy and an appeal uh, to those who may be in process with where they are in their faith journey, uh, which actually is all of us. Uh, everybody is in process in some degree or another. Last, last week, um, Lisa and I, my wife, we had the opportunity to take a quick trip to Tucson, Arizona, to celebrate our son's graduation from his uh, army training at Fort Huachuca. And it was a quick trip. It was 48 hours. Like, we, we were, it was a down and back, and, and we... We were road warriors in that, well, we flew, <laughs> but, uh, but it was quick. But we had never been to Tucson before, never been to Tucson, and though we wanted to do what we could to take it all in, we just didn't know a lot about Tucson going there. And it's the case, I mean, you've experienced it. Every city, every region has these unique qualities and features that kind of make it its own. Right, and Tucson is one of those places. Tucson is the place that has the Seguro cactus, which is the cactus that pops into your mind when somebody says, "Think of a cactus." Um, it's the cactus emoji, right? And and that's uh, <laughs> that's what they have uh, there in Seguro, uh, in in Tucson is the Seguro cactus and the the national park there that that uh, you can go and visit those. We were able to figure out a few things when when we went to Tucson, and we, we had a great time. Um, we had a great time with Chris. We explored the area a little bit. But if we lived in Tucson, figuring out what to do during that time would have been a completely different ballgame, right? It would have been much easier for us to do. Why is that? Well, it's because the idea of being in the high desert and what we assume about what that experience will be like can only take you so far. Because Tucson is a place, like any place, that has specific realities, right? It has parks, and it has restaurants, and it has neighborhoods, and it has local flavor, and it has oddities, and it has traditions, and it has history, and tragedies, and fun that you have to, you have to learn about in order to really take it in. In other words, you, you have to engage with the reality on the ground, with the facts on the ground. And, and the same is true of the gospel. The same is true of Christianity. We may have ideas about Christianity or the Bible and what it says or 
what it means. We may have ideas about the life and the ministry of Jesus and who he was, but ideas alone aren't going to get us very far. What we need is on-the-ground specifics. And so today's passage gives us some of this. And so we're going to unpack this together. We've been working through the book of Acts, and one of the things that you find is Acts is full of sermons. There are a lot of sermons. Depending on who's counting, there are between 15 and 19 sermons in the book of Acts, from Peter to Stephen to Philip to James, and today with Paul. And in this series so far, we've, we've talked about the context of them more than we've actually gotten into the sermons themselves. But today, that's what I want to do. I want to get into the sermon itself. And the reason I want to do it is because they're, they're all similar in the book of Acts. And so to talk about one of them, in a sense, is to talk about all of them. And so what I want to do is I want us to familiarize ourselves with the details of most of the sermons in the book of Acts, this kind of on-the-ground exploration. I want us to kind of get into the neighborhood, right, of a sermon in the book of Acts. I want to get to know the streets that are there. And so one of the things that we see right off the bat is, is that it's a pattern for the apostles' evangelism whenever possible, whenever they enter a city, to preach in the synagogue first, and then to go to the Greeks. And that's what happens here in this passage and the verses leading up to it. And the reason this is the case, the reason that the apostles would go to the synagogue first and then preach in more Gentile settings is because the gospel is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's the fulfillment that Israel had been established under. And so when the apostles go to the Jewish people first, they're making a point and the point is that the seeds of the gospel had been sown in them first. And in a way, they're given this kind of priority. And our text demonstrates this. Acts 13, 13 to 15, verses we haven't read yet uh, this morning, Luke tells us kind of what's happening here, that, they, that they've gone from Cyprus to the coast of Asia Minor. By the time Paul and Barnabas make it to Perga in Galatia, John Mark, who had been with them, uh, has decided to return to Jerusalem. And so moving on, Paul and Barnabas, after traveling about 100 miles inland, are invited to speak in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, which is not the Syrian Antioch where they're from. Isn't that fun? I think it's fun because you're like, all right, I'm lost on the map. I don't know what we're talking about. Well, see, there was Pisidian Antioch and there was Syrian Antioch, and they're different. <clears throat> but we pick up with, with Paul's message to them, and I actually want to read a few verses uh, <laughs> that precede the text that we just read, because we kind of started midway through the sermon, and so I want to go back and I want to read the opening verses of the sermon so that we can have it in full. So this is uh, verses 16 through, oh, 16 through 25. Uh, Paul stood up. Motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, so he's in the synagogue, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arms, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, 
the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, behold, after me is coming one, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. So that's the verses that lead into here where Paul says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and then what Price read. So this is one of the earliest events of Paul's life as a missionary, what we're reading here. And, and one of the things that we see in this passage is that there is a general openness at this point to the proclamation of the gospel rather than resistance, which is what comes later. So there's an openness. Like when he was in Crete, the proconsul wanted to hear more. But whether there's openness or resistance, in either case, the gospel is always presented as a an accept or reject kind of faith. Last week we talked about how it was a go and tell kind of faith. Here it's an accept or reject kind of faith. That's the nature of the content of the gospel. Paul's address is similar to Stephen's in Acts 7 in that what he does is he gives an historical survey of God's people. Stephen's sermon dealt mostly with Moses. Paul here kind of really roots his in the Jesus coming from the kingly procession of King David. But they both present Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And both with an appeal to receive and not reject Jesus as God's Messiah given for the salvation of his people. And so I know that everything I'm talking about right now maybe may feel a little bit dense, um, but it's important for us to see this. And I hope that if you'll just, if you'll walk with me through this, through the unpacking of this, that it, it, will, it will pay off in the end. Uh, because there's a basic principle here that's important for all of us to recognize. So that's what, that's what we're trying to lift uh, right now. So Paul's message, his sermon, is composed of basically four key parts. Uh, the first is in 16 to 25, which is this Old Testament history, and that the Old Testament history is about the promise fulfilled in Christ. It's about the covenant fulfilled in Christ. So the whole Old Testament, what he's saying, has been pointing to Jesus. And Paul begins with perhaps the defining event in the minds of most Israelites, and that is their slavery in Egypt and being delivered from that. And so he's establishing that if you want to talk about Jesus, you're talking about something that is rooted in history, that has defining events. One of those events, maybe chief among them in the minds of many, is their delivery from slavery and tyranny. And then he speaks about how God's deliverance, uh, how, uh, how after this delivery from, from Egypt, God built the kingdom of Israel out of a wandering band of former slaves, which culminated in the crowning of King David. And at this point, everybody's perking up because David's a hero. 
David is the gold standard. He's the king whose reputation no other king could could seem to live up to. And so when Israel is thinking about their Messiah, when he's thinking about their Savior, they're thinking about David. Israel's hope rested on the promise that God had established David's throne forever, and they were still looking for the fulfillment of this promise, and they were looking for a king who would just be kind of more David than David was, right? Somebody who's like him, only really like him. And Jesus, Paul says, fulfills the prophecy about David who would be a man after God's heart who would do his will. Notice what Paul's doing here. He's unfolding the ancient history of the people of Israel and then puts it all in the context now of their generation. Because what he does after talking about David is he brings John the Baptist into it. So, He's putting it in their context. Paul was essentially telling this nation that is rooted in an ancient faith that all that they had clung to and all that they had longed for had been fulfilled in their midst, in Christ. You know what that would be like today, here? This news that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies that they've been hearing about their whole life, it would be akin to... Christ returning in our lifetime. It's on that level, right? It would would be an astounding proclamation. And it would also be the kind of proclamation that is either right or it's wrong, right? It's not, there's nothing neutral about this. Either the Messiah that they've been waiting for and longing for has come or he has not. And that's the stakes of what the message is here. But that's the thing about a claim like this. You have to do something with it. If it's true that all of the prophecies that the people of God had been hearing and growing up with, this Messiah that they'd been longing for, if the message of the gospel is Jesus Christ of Nazareth is he, your only two options are to accept that or to reject it. It can't be that he was for some and he isn't for others because it's an absolute idea. It's something that is either false or it is absolutely and universally true according to its own terms. So imagine, I mean, Paul and Barnabas going into the synagogue and saying, your entire faith system has been anticipating God sending his Redeemer, the Messiah, the Christ. And our message to you simply is that he has come and that salvation is found in him and in him alone. And then in verses 26 to 31 which is part of the primary text we've been working from today, there's this message. It's that the Jews in Jerusalem did not recognize or accept Jesus. So that's the next part. He gives gives the Old Testament history, and then he says that the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem rejected him. And so that's what he's moving into here. He begins with this thought. um, He begins this thought with a call to listen, much like in verse 16. He says, to us has been given the message of salvation. And when he says to us, he doesn't mean Paul and Barnabas. He doesn't mean to us has been given this. He's meaning to us, the Jewish nation, all the Jews in the room, the people in the synagogue. If this is true, then they have to do something with it. And if you're somebody who's thinking about the claims of Christ and and Jesus, you have to do something with it. You have to do something with him. The Jews living in Jerusalem, he says, by and large, rejected Christ, even condemning him to death. And Paul, in his sermon, is holding 
the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem accountable for this, saying it like this, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophet, which are read every Sabbath. That's strong language, right? Because what he's saying is, had they understood their own prophets, which they read in the synagogue every single week, they would have recognized Jesus. But only a few of them did. And instead, most of them rejected him. And then he moves on in 32 through 37. And again, most sermons in the book of Acts are kind of following the same kind of train of thought. He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of specific Old Testament prophecies. And and what he's doing is he's not holding the Jews in Antioch accountable for Jesus' crucifixion. Rather, what he's doing with them is he's inviting them to respond differently than the way that the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem responded. And here's where we have the language of mission starting to show up, the invitation of the gospel. Paul is saying, today... We bring you the good news that what God promised to do to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. And then he references four Old Testament passages. He brings the texts in because these are the, these are the, this is, this is, these are the neighborhoods in the gospel, right, is the Old Testament text. Is he's not introducing some kind of new idea, but he's saying it's in there, it's in the text. And it's not even veiled, it's there in the text. Psalm 2, verse 7, he reads this, You are my son, today I have become your father. Paul is saying that this is God the Father addressing God the Son in this passage. Then he refers to Isaiah 55, 3. I will give you, speaking to Christ, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. God is speaking of fulfilling in Christ the promises that he made to King David, this continuing throne. In Psalm 16.10, he says, you will not let your holy one see decay. This is a reference to the Messiah who, though buried, did not decay in the grave but rose from it. And then finally, in verse 41, he quotes from Habakkuk 1.5. I am going to do something in your, in your age that you will not believe. He's saying it's there. It's there in the passage and it's what's happened. Jesus is the fulfillment of these, of these prophecies. This is the language of mission, showing Jesus to be God's Messiah. The hope of salvation. The one true, planned, prophecy-fulfilling Savior of the world. And it's important to keep in mind, and this is what I want us to get from all that I've just kind of brought up, and that is Paul is not in the synagogue preaching an alternative way of looking at things. Instead, what he's doing is he's telling the Jewish people, your own scriptures and your own covenant promises that you have built your entire nation around, your entire culture around, they have been fulfilled in Christ, and you don't need to look anywhere else for all of the things that you've hoped for and all of the things that you've ached for, all of the brokenness that you've wanted to see healed, all of the freedom from tyranny and slavery that your hearts have longed for, you don't have to look anywhere else. It has been fulfilled in Christ. And then he concludes the message with an appeal to believe. He concludes this message asking people to respond. 
And he does this a little bit by way of personal testimony. He's speaking as one who has tried to be justified through law-keeping. And he's failed miserably at it. And he tells them forgiveness, that thing that, you, that sets your heart on edge when you don't have it, that discontent, that longing to be reconciled to your creator, forgiveness, comes through not keeping the law. But it comes through the grace of Jesus. It's a proclamation of the gospel that's happening here. He says, the law condemns us as sinners because everybody fails to keep it. So if we're to be saved, it can't be through law keeping. And he's speaking to religious leaders who are all about law keeping, right? And he says, it doesn't work. But the good news is, if you're going to be saved and it can't be through law keeping, then it really has to come through the righteousness of somebody else that can be applied to you. And that is who Christ is, someone who has kept the law perfectly, somebody who could stand in the place of sinners and represent us before God. Friends, this is the gospel, still. And this is just what Christ has done. It's the good news that has Paul and Barnabas there in Pisidian Antioch in the first place. See, the gospel that Paul proclaims isn't merely one of philosophical insight or theological principles or situational ethics. The gospel is the proclamation of a set of facts that is either true or it's false. And those are your only two options. As Tucson has a set of facts that are either true or they're false, so does the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a way it is. Now, I want to get a little nerdy if we haven't been nerdy already. Um, I'm going to teach you a word. Now, I have to tell you a funny story about this word. The word is kerygma. And we had a staff meeting earlier this week, and I said, I'm going to teach you a word. The word is kerygma. Which, when I hear the sound of that word, I think there had to have been a Jesus music band in the 70s or 80s by that name. And I said that out loud, and Lyric Fesco's hand went up, and he just started laughing. And I said, You've heard of a band called Kerygma? And he goes, I was in a band called Kerygma. <laughs> I mean, what are the odds? It's just so perfect, right? Kerygma. What is kerygma? Kerygma is a word that refers to the basic set of facts in nearly every New Testament gospel presentation. Like if you were to distill it down, what is in almost every message about the gospel of Jesus Christ after the resurrection? And it comes down to four basic things. Some of these you'll be like, of course. Maybe one or two of them you'll be like, that's interesting. Um, what are they? Because they happen all, just look up the sermons in Acts and you will see this, these four things in almost every single one of them. The first, and this one may surprise you, is a reference to John the Baptist's annunciation of the coming of the Messiah. I want to give you a homework assignment right now. The homework assignment is this, why? Why, if there are only four things that are mentioned is John the Baptist's annunciation of Jesus one of the four? That's an intriguing question. 
Maybe if you're in a connect group, raise that as part of your discussion. Why that? I'm not going to answer it right now. Second, Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Third, Jesus' burial. And fourth, Jesus' resurrection, with the caveat that almost in every case, his resurrection is accompanied by mentioning eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And Paul mentions all four of those here in this sermon. So you have John the Baptist's annunciation of the coming Messiah, Jesus' trial and crucifixion, his passion, his burial, and his resurrection, almost always including a mention of eyewitnesses of that resurrection. Basic facts of the gospel. Over time, many have tried to redefine Christianity to make it seem more palatable for self-made people. Thinking that the gospel needs us to make it relevant, right? I mean, this is, I'm a pastor. I, I, I swim in the waters of, of, uh, of being among those who are, who are asking the question from time to time, how do we make the gospel more relevant? And it's such an inherently flawed question, right? What's not relevant about the creator of heaven and earth addressing the chasm of separation between himself and his creation through sending us a redeemer. I mean, that's relevant to everybody. It's an accept or reject proposition, but it's relevant to everybody. It never works to try to make the gospel relevant because the gospel is unbendable. And eventually you come up against the basic kerygma, the basic facts of the gospel, of what happened. That Jesus' coming was, was proclaimed in advance. That he was arrested and crucified after a trial. That he was buried and in the grave, really dead. And that he rose from the gra- grave and eyewitnesses have seen it. See, in the end, when the basic facts of the gospel don't conform to a new revised version of Christianity, one of them has to give way to the other. And depending on how you go, you can either create your own truth or you can respond to the truth as it has been presented. Then the gospel of Jesus Christ, as presented in Scripture, demands a response. It's either an accept or reject. There's no middle for this. You either believe that Jesus was the Messiah that had been prophesied, who lived in our place, died in our place, defeated the power of the grave and rose from it in resurrection and gives us life in his name. Or that did not happen. I love what we find in the last few verses, and I'm going to conclude with this. Verses 40 to 43, you see people respond to the message. They've just been given... Old Test- an Old Testament history class, right? They've just been reminded of all the things that we've talked about here, John the Baptist, kerygma. Uh, and then Paul warns the people, don't gloss over this message, but instead weigh it, and weigh it carefully. And we see in their response that many of the people here took it to heart. How did they take it to heart? They asked Paul and Barnabas, to come back and tell them again. 
to, to tell them a little bit more, to say a little bit more. What we don't see clearly in this passage is whether they accepted or rejected Jesus. We don't see that. We don't know. What we know is that they listened and they wanted to hear more. And this is reminding us that conversion is often a process. And some of you may be in a process of becoming a Christian. To where if somebody said, are you in the process of coming, becoming a Christian? You might say, I might be, right? There's a process here. They listened. They wanted to hear more. And maybe that's you. They asked Paul to come back and talk about it. Conversion is often a process. People often take time to chew on the gospel before accepting it. And this is how God works. They want to kind of understand the layout of the city a little bit. They want to, they want to study the map before they move there, right? In our culture, a lot is made of the moment of conversion. But the truth is, because the gospel is an accept or reject kind of faith, many people will hear the gospel only to take it home with them and consider it and consider the claims of Christ. And in some cases, for those who do accept Jesus as the Messiah, it can be a process that takes months, years, decades. So don't give up on those you love who may be in a process here. We need not worry about conversion taking time. I choke on those words because I don't want that to be the case, but we need not worry about conversion taking time, and here's why. Because conversion, that is, becoming a Christian, is ultimately the Holy Spirit's work all the time. We talked about that last week. As he illuminates the gospel for people. As he takes people from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. That's not something we do. It's something the Holy Spirit does. And so believing in Christ is a way of seeing the world through the lens of sin and redemption. And it becomes the light that we see by. And the Holy Spirit is always the author of this. And yet we also hear Paul's words, consider this carefully. Because it's one of the way the Lord works in our lives, is by giving us minds that can think. Is this you? Are you not sure what you believe? If you're not ready to call yourself a Christian, then this passage is for you, because it reminds us that the gospel is not just a feeling. Christianity, the Christian faith, is not just a, a societal club that you belong to. It's a message with certain facts that are either true or they're not. But what the facts are, are about God intervening in time and space to reconcile us to himself. Maybe you're in this process. If so, know that it is something that you will eventually accept or reject. You don't have a third option. So avail yourself of the opportunities to hear more. It is the most important thing you will ever tangle with. And as you do, my prayer is that in that process, 
you would come to be undone by the love and the grace and the kindness of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word being living and active, for the way that you work in time and space to call people to yourself. Um, Even as we have the Apostle Paul here preaching an accept or reject kind of gospel, we're reminded even as the painting in the back wall of the sanctuary shows of his conversion as he was on his way to persecute Christians being struck by you and converted in a moment with the inescapable reality of who Jesus is. Father, we know that you can do that in our lives. We know that you can do that in the lives of people we love. We also know that this process can take time. Lord, I pray that you would give us all the humility to trust you in that process, whether it's us longing as believers for the conversion of people that we love or whether it's perhaps somebody in the process of exploring Christianity, that there would be a humility there um, to not equate Kerygma, the basic content of the gospel with the foolishness of Christians that's seen in social media interlocking Christianity with grabs for power uh, or disdain for neighbor. Uh, but Lord, would you help us to see the beauty of the gospel that calls us to a posture of love and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Thank you for your mercy and your grace at work in our lives. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.